Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast, and thank you for making us Canada's number one real estate podcast. My name is Nick Hill. I'm a real estate investor and mortgage professional. And I'm Daniel Foch, also a real estate investor and a real estate broker. And today we're going to be talking about an awesome report from commercial real estate firm Cushman and Wakefield in Toronto on single family residential real estate investment in Canada. It's written by Samantha Sanella, uh, Senior Man- Managing Director at Cushman and Wakefield, as well as Christina Gar- Garcia, Senior Associate at Cushman and Wakefield. Yeah, we're going to have to try to get these two or at least one of them on the show to discuss this report because it's probably one of my favorite reports I've ever read. Incredibly thorough. And Dan, you and I have been through a couple reports. It's nice when you finally get the institutional level analysis paired with sort of this world of more small cap investment. This is something that you and I have tried to 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 do here and and with a lot of the research work that I'm doing as well. So it is I agree with you. It is nice. It's a nice collision of worlds and uh a lot of it is stuff that's just I mean maybe it's just affirming our beliefs. So that's why we like it, but um it is it, it is a little bit of an Ontario focused report, but it's not you'll notice it's not very uh Toronto's the center of the universe e because basically nowhere in the GTA ranks in the top investable markets in Ontario. <laughs> However, I guess maybe to be fair to the national audience, we should also revisit a Fraser Institute report that shows the housing supply gap on a province by province basis. So you've heard us mention this report before, but it's it's called uh, Canada's Growing Housing Gap, comparing population growth and housing completions in Canada from 1972 to 2002. And it shows that the annual ratio of population growth to housing completion in the provinces in 2002. We'll just go through the list here. I'll just quickly go through from, I guess I'm going from east to west. So Newfoundland and Labrador, 9.7 new people for every new house under construction. Prince Edward Island, that number is 5.1. Nova Scotia, 7.7. New Brunswick, highest in the country at 11.3. Quebec, 2.8. Ontario, 5.5. Manitoba 4.6, Saskatchewan 8.2, Alberta 6.2, and British Columbia second lowest in the country 3.5. There's a couple other kind of coast to coast comparisons that we're gonna I'm gonna start bringing those back on the show because I've been doing a lot of research on those in right now we're working on the uh, picking a market segment of the realist.ca course and a big theme is when we're talking about housing creation which this whole episode is going to be about from the Cushman report that affirms our beliefs, you're in a lot of cases picking a municipality that can help you, that's an ally in getting your approvals. And and that's one of the biggest things. Like if you're getting in the business of being a housing creator, you need a place that's going to let you do your job. And so we'll go back to look at some of those permit processing, municipal scorecards, stuff like that. Because we haven't touched on those in like a year and a half, two years. Wow, it's been that long. eh? It's crazy. Yeah, good recap. I mean, that's this stuff from the Fraser Institute, uh, you know, especially New Brunswick, 11.3 to to one, 11.3 people to one house. Just just crazy. So 
lot of stuff to cover in this report. It's like 50 pages. We've distilled it down to as little as we could while keeping all the really good, relevant, juicy information. So we're going to get deep into it. But before we do that, Dan, I, I had to put this review in here because it's, it's probably one of the best reviews we've, we've gotten out of the hundreds we have. So thank you very much for anyone that takes the time to go even just to rate the show five stars, but to leave us a written review. It really helps the show and hell, it puts a smile on our faces. So it's worth it. Okay. Here is the review. I stumbled onto this podcast on the very first episode and have been hooked ever since. Finally, a podcast that has relevant content specific to the Canadian real estate market. Daniel and Nick deliver Stephen Hawking-like knowledge with the whimsical flair of Willy Wonka. Let's pause for applause right there because this is good. Um, their never-wavering commitment to delivering two perfect episodes a week is beyond reproach. Honestly, guys, love the show. Thanks for all the great advice and hope to work on a deal with you one day from Jordan 1980. Jordan. Thank you so much. 1980, great year. Stephen Hawking, also a newsworthy guy as of late. I'm not gonna not gonna get to that yeah, one. Why? Uh, <laughs> had a little chuckle on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite the pair there, Stephen Hawking and uh, Willy Wonka. I guess that's you and I, Dan, in some weird alternate universe. <laughs> yeah, cool. I'm into it as long as I get to be Stephen Hawking. I suppose. <laughs> Smart fellow. Um, yeah, so maybe we'll just, just hop back in the yeah. – let's hop back into the report here. So tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, so I mean, for, first things first, let's give credit where credit's due. The report was uh, researched heavily and published by the good people over at Cushman and Wakefield that we mentioned at the top of the show. And if you're not familiar with Cushman, they're one of the biggest commercial real estate firms in the world. Uh, yeah, and I guess along with I, – I think that it's kind of like similar to the banks. They have the big six sort of thing going on down there. So like JLL, Collier, CBRE, and a few others. Um, I used to work at CB, and I think you, you kind of brush shoulders with a lot of these folks in uh, in your past life. Yeah, yeah. These used, well, to, this used to be our crew here. So Cushman is, again, one of the largest real estate service firms in the world. So they do a lot of different things over at Cushman. They got over 50,000 employees in 400 different offices in about 60 countries and they've got about 9.4 billion dollars core assets and and servicing properties they do facilities and property management leasing they get involved in capital markets valuation and a bunch of other real estate services so the point of telling everyone this is uh they're credible they know a thing or two about real estate yeah, they are definitely qualified to be talking about this. It's a good report. It's very thorough. They made it really easy for us to summarize it with excellent headings and executive summaries and visuals and all that stuff. And this, I feel like it could honestly almost be two full episodes. So hopefully it will become two episodes if we can get Samantha on the show. Yeah, that'd be great. So let's get into it. The report starts by contextualizing Canadian single family. So not something we talk a ton about on the show unless you're buying it to convert it, but which is what the report is all about. It contextualized Canadian single family rental investments against our big brother to the south, the USA and their market. And we've seen a lot of things. If you listen to bigger pockets, we've seen a lot of those groups go in and buy a ton of single family homes. But we've also seen the likes of Blackstone and other hedge funds go and enter into that market as well. Yeah, it's funny. Um, 
I post a lot of stuff on Blackstone because I know it just gets the TikTok kids fired up, right? <laughs> it's just you're guar- you're guaranteed to get like a hundred thousand views and a bunch of comments of people saying you'll own nothing and be happy if as soon as you mention Blackstone. Yeah, that's the same. I literally like did a TikTok recently. <laughs> like my hook was just Blackstone. I'm gonna try it again. Coming like that is like Blackstone, and then I said what they did, right? I'm gonna do one soon. That's baby boomers, and then see what then. <laughs> That'll be my hook. That should get the Gen Zs fired up. It seems to. So Blackstone, pretty newsworthy lately in the context of Canada because they just bought Toronto-based Tricon Residential. This like just happened. So the headline says Blackstone to acquire Tricon for $3.5 billion. The deal gives Blackstone more than 37,000 homes owned by Tricon. Wow. Yeah. Now, now to just add to that, an article in Housing Wire goes on to say that Tricon, which owned just over 37,000 homes at the end of the third quarter of 2023, was one of the three big publicly traded institutional home buyers. Most single family rental giants are privately held or consolidated into a broader REIT, a real estate investment trust, which we've talked a lot about on the show. By the close of Q3 in 2023, American Homes for Rent. It feels like my dad made the name for that one. Like it's the number four. You guys can't see this, but it's American homes, the number four rent. So something that you think you might see on a front lawn kind of thing. Uh, but definitely like a nineties, like they built, they built that brand in like a Microsoft uh, public, Microsoft publisher, like logo. And and to be fair, they were probably one of the first people to to replace four with the number four. So hey, well, well done. And they didn't do too bad because they own over 58,000 single family homes. So not really the front yard operation. Operation like we're describing. Also, innovation homes with a whopping 76,000 single family homes. They and, and Tricon essentially is, is being compared to these to these other three giants. Invitation homes, that is not innovation homes. Invitation. Innovative uh, rebranding there. That's dyslexia yeah. coming back to haunt me on, on a live recording here. Okay, so now let's think about this when we consider Cushman's report, right? So the evolution of the $4.4 trillion single family rental sector in the United States, $4.4 trillion market serves as a case study to demonstrate how conversions of individually owned single family homes to institutionally owned rental units can create a dual benefit to renters and investors alike. This strategy provides a quality rental housing options for tenants and can generate predictable recurring cash flows for investor owners. And let's be real, like a lot of people don't, we're, I think we're growing, like a, a lot of it's that Black, Blackstone, World Economic Forum, TikTok commenters like, oh, you'll own nothing and be happy. But I, I think you're starting to see a lot of people just be like not, not interested in, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. When do I get to the be happy? Not happy I, I already own nothing. When yeah, do I get exactly. to the be happy yeah. part? I held up my hand to the bargain, guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The, no. I think a lot of people just don't want to want to own anymore. Like I think you're just seeing. I think like a lot, and maybe it is like this culturally embedded thing that we're being taught by the Blackstones of the world, or maybe it's just like they've realized that it's not all it's cut out to be. Or, right? or so, maybe anyway, it's also well, just cyclical, right? Like maybe in ten years from now, this whole sentiment and and all these ideas will be washed away with another bull run. Like I mean. Well, in order to own a house, you got to be able to afford it. This is pro tip, by the way. This real estate investor sure here, I'm going to tell you. Yeah, no, I know, I know. A lot of people, a lot of people miss that one. The past couple. How's of years. How's that for a hook? <laughs> 
Yeah. So in order to own a house, you have to be able to afford it. And uh, a lot of people can't afford houses right now. So mm. this is where we are. Like, maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe. Yeah. Let's this. I, I, I put so much of this report content in here, so we should probably keep this. We'll moving. keep this going. Yeah. We'll keep the banter to, to light here. So back to the report, it goes on to say that with time and investment, this sector being the single family rental. So if you hear us say FSR, that's what that means, has the potential to develop into a professionally managed, institutionally owned commercial real estate asset class within the larger rental housing spectrum in Canada, similar to what's happened in the United States over the last couple of decades. And in this report, they aim to showcase that the market potential of a single family rental as an asset class within the broader housing commercial real estate sector in Ontario which is, of course, Canada's most populous region. The report focuses on 34 different markets, which we might not have time to touch on in all of these, but again, this likely would become a two-parter. Focuses on, on 34 markets of different sizes and characteristics within the province of Ontario, but the single-family rental strategy can obviously be applied to your area, wherever you're listening to this across Canada. Yeah, so the report attempts to put the Canadian housing market in the context with G7 counterparts, although it, it kind of blows them out of the water when you look <laughs> at it. Like, it just it doesn't make Canada seem compelling compared to the, the rest of the G7 uh, when you look at rent, rent uh, sorry, price to income. And we've talked about this, like, The Economist has a great chart on it. When you look at price to income and price to rent in Canada, it just doesn't look that, all that good. Not a great picture. But, yeah, I mean, it apparently is trying to convince us that the housing demand and market factors in Canada could make it a prime location for large-scale rental housing investment like this. And the report goes on to suggest that we should look at the U.S. as a shining example of how investors can adapt the institutionalization of the single-family rental sector to the Canadian market because, you know, what works so well in the U.S. Sh should surely work here in Canada, too. You don't sound all too convinced, though. <laughs> I mean... I think the report does outline it like there are really only five markets where this actually makes sense. And so I don't think the numbers work in most places. And in order for it to work, either rates would have to be much lower or cap rates would have to be much higher, which means that prices would need to come down substantially. And I think that's just unlikely given the absence of supply and like... I'm pretty bearish, but I still just think like to see a meaningful compression to the point. And let's just rewind here. Like, let's look at Core Development, whose name recently showed up in the news again with the headline: Toronto-based developer vowed to buy that vowed to buy up one billion dollars in single-family homes, plans to add ten thousand more houses to its portfolio. Now, this is the important part. Subheading says the new goal will include both existing and newly built houses, according to Core Development Group CEO. So you you have to be creating units for the numbers to work. You just have to. Yeah, great, great point. So let's go back to the first announcement on this from 2021. Toronto-based Core Development Group plans to buy $1 billion worth of single-family homes and convert them into rentals has triggered intense debate over the political impact of the investment strategy on the Canadian housing market. No surprise there. The Canadian, the, sorry, the company has said it intends to buy 4,000 rental units in Ontario, Quebec, BC, and Atlantic Canada by 2026. So this is currently happening right now. As first reported by the Globe and Mail, the idea is to buy these homes that can be split into two units. We've talked about this once or twice, I think, Dan, with a second unit in the basement and then turn both over to the rental market. 
Now, corporate investors like private equity firms, real estate investment trusts, and financial institutions have become an increasingly large presence in Canada's multifamily apartment rental sector. An investment strategy focused on turning single-family homes into rentals, while already common in the U.S., is thought to be a first in Canada, I guess, from that institutional level. If it's profitable, experts say it will likely invite imitation from other corporate real estate investors. Yeah, so they were originally trying to make it work with sort of a blend of single family and duplex residential, but I think the single family just didn't work in most markets. And I remember they were selling some assets as well. That got a little bit of media. The only stuff that worked was stuff that was duplexed and that's outlined in that article. And and that's a key theme. You basically have to be multiplexing houses to cash flow in today's market. This means investors have to be housing creators. You can't make money in in real estate investing in Canada right now if you're not having more than one unit in a home. In most I think in almost all markets, maybe there's some small fringe markets where rents are so much higher than mortgage carrying costs that it would make sense. But this is a good thing from my perspective. Excess demand, like if if, if there's so many people that want to that have there's so much capital that wants to spill over into the ownership market out of just owning your primary, it should be creating housing. So it's a good thing. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and in regards to that, another article uh, came out about this recently titled Condo Builder Plans to Build Rental-Only Detached Houses in Ontario. And that's by Rochelle Younglay, uh, who's a real estate reporter for the Globe and Mail. Yeah, great article. You can always count on Rochelle for an excellent analysis. I remember, I think we were like totally fanboying when we were reading an article on here before about how well it explained <laughs> things. So, Yeah, uh, well, this article is a reflection of that. She describes it very well. So here we go. After being vilified for its plans to buy $1 billion worth of houses in Ontario and then, then turn around and rent them out, Core Development Group Limited says it now also wants to buy rental houses from scratch. It's build been two rental houses. Build rental scratch. houses from scratch. Sorry, I'm on a roll tonight here. It's been two years since Core's founder and chief executive officer, Corey Houghton, told the Glow and Mail that the company would buy hundreds of detached houses in mid-sized southern Ontario markets. The plan was then to add basement suites and turn those units into rentals. Mr. Houghton did not anticipate the ensuing wave of outcry. His company was accused of profiting from rising rents, taking houses away from Canadians, and contributing to the pandemic surge in home prices. The news added fuel to the debate over the role of real estate investors and whether properties should be considered assets or homes. Since then, high mortgage rates have made it much harder for individual buyers to afford their own homes, and these high borrowing costs have kept more people in rentals, which has in turn led to a shortage of those and of those rental units and a spike in monthly rents. So the federal government is now pushing the private sector to create rental-specific apartment buildings and has reduced development costs through uh, DC's HST uh, with tax breaks and also cheaper financing. This is from the article. What cheaper financing might they be talking about, Nick? It's something that you and I are talking I about. Know, it must be, we don't know anything All about day, that. every day these days. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, they really nailed it on a lot of things in this article that we've been talking about on the show for for quite some time here. The first thing being building less than five units. You pay no development charges. So you get the advantage against the big developers. And then if you decide to build more than five units, you get to use the MLI Select product, which is 
you know, the best leverage, the best rates, the longest amortization. If you haven't heard us sing its praises, uh, you're not listening to enough of our content. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm surprised you haven't changed your name to MLI Select yet. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should get Corey Houghton on the show, honestly. That's, I, well, let's call that an official call out. If anyone knows Corey, please tell him to come on our show. I actually, I, I literally asked him today in a, publicly in a comment on LinkedIn. So yeah, um, I love that. I totally know. shameless. That's my follow up. Totally shameless and out in the open. Not even a DM slide so we can, you know, reject you in private. Yeah, no, you got to, what do they say? What do the kids say in these days? Shoot your shot. <laughs> yeah. We should also try to interview some of the private equity groups that we work with at Land Bank who are looking to do similar things, basically looking to fund these types of rental subdivisions at scale. So as long as it's stick frame construction in a suburban market and a minimum of 100 units. Yeah. I mean, if you know, if anyone listening knows or has projects of that uh, scale that builders are looking to build as rental, potentially with an equity partner, just give us a shout. We have a couple of groups interested in those kind of deals. All right. I think we've, we've teased this report enough in the context of a bunch of different news. So let's just dive in. So it says the development of the single family rental class in Canada can, number one, provide the solution to the systemic shortage of housing, and number two, provide an investment strategy in targeted single-family residential markets as an attractive and growing sector. Yeah, it also presents the evolution of the single-family rental sector, and again, compares it to the U.S. and Canada, but specifically Ontario. So it identifies transferable SFR strategies and explores opportunities to approach the Canadian market maybe differently than we have been. So it lists some benefits here of the single family rental strategy in Ontario and they include And and so remember when you're when we're reading this to you that this is Cushman and Wakefield. This is being presented to an institutional audience. So while all of these advantages exist for us as as regular investors, small cap investors, these are also advantages that are being presented to large, like the cores of the world, as an example, like the Blackstones of the world or the invitation homes of the world. Or, and so it's just fascinating from my perspective because we, we've talked, you know, even when we had Sasha from Greybrook on the show and he was going through a bunch of different strategies and you were like, yeah, this is basically exactly what we tell our audience to do just with four extra zeros at the end of it, yeah. right? So yeah. So let's kick this off. So it says converting, renovating, and densifying single family home residential properties can be an expedited solution to address the chronic shortage and quality of housing in the market. And a big piece of that is, so, that, so literally just what they're saying is agility, right? If so, that, And again, they're talking to the audience of institutional investors. So, hey, Mr. Institutional Investor, rather than taking six years to build a condo building, maybe start flipping or start converting individual homes to duplexes. And that's literally what CORE did. Yeah, right? and, and great point, Dan. Well, we're on that. Let's not forget that a lot of those institutional inv level investors have been kind of burned on some of their investment properties in the last couple of years, specifically if you're in the office space, right? So they're, they've got capital to deploy into real estate assets and they're just looking at what assets can have the best yield, right? And agility and, and the potential, you know, ease of liquidity for these guys is 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 a huge factor. It goes on to say that uh, and this is another benefit working with existing housing stock aligns with an environmental, social and governance mission so that's the ESG stuff that we hear all about helps reduce the carbon footprint associated with the new construction while also offering housing at more affordable rental rates 
compared to what is financially possible with new construction. So this is saying, hey, the stuff that already exists is great. We can buy it and make it better. And it's cheaper to do that than going and building new stuff. Yeah. Next is that the single family rental business model has been tried, tested, and true and proven in the U.S. And so they they say that investors in in growing markets like Ontario can benefit from being early adopters, early movers, fast followers, as shown by the ones who were in the U.S. during that last real estate cycle. And I mean, this is kind of what we're doing with the fund that we have, you know, the the group of investors that we have is literally. um, And we know individuals who have done this well and sold large portfolios to some of the groups named in this, in this episode prior. So it's it like, this exists, this is real. And, and, and if you think, if you really, if you're, if you're good at putting together duplex, triplex, fourplex portfolios, good at acquiring, good at stabilizing, good at maximizing those assets, I can tell you right now that the cores of the world and the Blackstones of the world, they don't want, they don't want to be buying duplexes, you know, and putting together 20, 30 duplexes. So if you can do, there's a huge lift to be, to be made available to being the person who puts that portfolio together just at, just so you're aware. Yeah, no, really great point, right? I mean, if you're looking to exit, well, one, first of all, approach us because we'd, we'd love to help you with that or, or potentially buy it. But yeah, you, the next buyer for your portfolio may not be another small cap investor. They may be, you know, a multi-billion dollar multinational hedge fund or a private equity firm. Yeah. And a lot of these groups have like, they benefit from economies of scale. So they don't like, they're looking at cap rates that, or let's, let's just, we'll say cap rate. So you're, you know, maybe you're buying at a five cap and you're selling it at a 4.75 or something like that. And I mean, the incremental value creation that you have as a portfolio builder is is substantial and yeah. just and that's that's a 25 basis point change right for sure and i we we did actually do a full episode on on buying a portfolio versus building a portfolio i can't remember what number it is but go back and check that out if you want to hear more about about you know that yeah the next the next benefit here is the scattered single family rental they trade at higher spreads than built to rent or conventional or purpose built multifamily rental development so there's more money to be made with the well with the yeah and rentals. I think the spread piece is also like when you're you know built to rent like a large purpose built rental building is would trade like at you know whatever market cap rate is for a multifamily building whereas these single family rentals, they still have a, a layer of value that they could be occupied by an end user. And so if the end user is still willing to pay a little bit more, there's that's where the value comes from, right? The next one is layering on a densification strategy to the acquisition and rehabilitation of residential properties through ADUs. Not sure if you've ever heard of these. We don't talk about them very often on the show. So adding in basement apartments, ADUs, detached ADUs are substantial re- renovations that can enhance investor returns. I mean, this is all, like, I just love it. This report is just speaking our language. It's like, Finally. it's just, they've taken love everything it. that we've talked about on the show and just distilled it down into like the most perfect. And it's such a great, like, I, we'll, we'll put the link to the report in the show notes, but you have to go read this. It's, it's, it's really, really fantastic. Yeah, the next uh, benefit that they've got here, and I was waiting for this one, of course, the the old immigration piece. So Canada is expected to experience the greatest percent increase in immigration across all G7 countries, providing a multi-year tailwind for rental demand and need for new supply of quality rentals. Again, great point, something we've been talking about for a long time. 
Yeah, this was um, recently outlined in the Bank of Canada's monetary policy report today. So uh, when, Wednesday, January 24th, Bank of Canada had an announcement today. They held. Nobody was surprised. But I always get excited when they do their monetary policy report. They didn't mention housing that much in it, but they, they did show one chart, which was... It was already released by, um, I think it was Doug Porter from BMO, who, who is an economist. And they basically just used the same chart. It just shows rent CPI between population growth, and they're literally like the same line. So mm-hmm. there's that, which was, you know, they, 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 there's data to show like population growth leads to increase in rents. And that, as an investor, rents are your NOI portion of your, you know, your cap rate and so it should bring the value of your property up and increase your income and all of those wonderful things as an investor so yeah yeah exactly dan and and here's another piece of information that we've brought up just once or twice in the show the current 2.3 million units projected to deliver by 2030 is roughly 3.5 million short of the need for Canadian housing. And that's per CMHC for, from their uh, report in June of 2022. Yeah. So let's also not forget that in 2022, Canada's population grew by over a million people for the first time ever fueled almost exclusively by immigration and non-permanent residence growth. And over the past decade, Canada has built an average of 188,000 homes per year and that includes all types of housing however to keep up with population growth an additional 100,000 units would need to be would uh, would have been needed to maintain that 2016 ratio of housing to population now in Toronto approximately 28,000 units were approved annually from 2016 to 2021 but only an average of 15,000 units were actually built so almost less almost half yeah, to me, this is, um, you know, you, you often see people post the GDP per capita chart and say Canadians are getting poorer, right? We're getting more poor. So GDP per capita in Canada is falling. And I agree, but it, well, it's, that's just data. But the way that that is most likely to materialize from my perspective is from, or, or that we're all are going to feel it is from housing the biggest portion of most of our incomes. And so what it means for the average Canadian, it doesn't mean, you know, you're going to buy less groceries or you're going to go hungry or, you know, I mean, for the average Canadian, right? It means that you're, you're not going to buy, you'll, you'll never own your dream home, right? As honestly, like you're not going to step up from the house that you're in to another one, the same way that generations before us did. Right. And so there's like, there's limited upward mobility, but there's also just limited household mobility. And so what, and and what the the biggest way that that materializes, and we see this everywhere else in the world, like let's look at London, right? 200 years ahead of us. When everyone in the world wanted to move to London, they did. And all of the townhouses in London got cut up into flats. Well, what's happening in Canada? We have all of these McMansions and what are they going to do? They're going to get cut up into flats. We have, we talk about this all the time, but access bedrooms, we have a bunch of boomers that have houses that are too big and we have too many people for the amount of houses that we have. Just do the math. And what's like, you know, just do the math here. It's not, it's not rocket science. If, if, if we're not building more, if the high rise and builders aren't building more units because there's no investors lining up to, to buy cash flow negative condos anymore, what's going to happen? Existing housing stock gets converted to rental supply. So due to low housing production, the report says Canada's housing ratio, 471 housing units per 1,000 population is among the lowest in the G7 nations. 
to achieve the G7 average, an additional 1.8 million homes would have to be built. And it's remarkable from my perspective because we still, even with that, we still have some of the highest square footage per capita, Mm -hmm. right? So it's just, it's fascinating. Yeah, another uh, fascinating and kind of jaw-dropping stat right here is per the Ontario Housing Affordability Task Force, the average house price in Ontario skyrocketed 181% in the 10 years between 2011 and 2021, 181%. Well, at the same time, in that 10-year period, the average incomes only grew by 38%. There you go. They also quote the Association of Municipalities of Ontario, uh, a report that they had. I haven't even seen this report, but uh, the new construction requirements that differ significantly among municipalities. So, and this is where I was talking about the approval timelines thing and the municipal scorecards. I think Build puts out the municipal scorecards. Or somebody, there's somebody else who does it. I can't remember. Now, we covered but, uh, one of the reports maybe, maybe last year. Yeah. 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 So approval timelines range from 14 months to three years. The shorter end of this range is, yeah, yeah, I know. And so, and this is thinking about or comparing to the U.S. It's more challenging markets in the U.S., like San Francisco, as an example. Um, the the longer end is obviously going to be worse, where the housing crisis is exacerbated by the lack of supply, right? And so this is where it's tricky as an investor. It's like if you want to be a housing creator. You want a municipality that's going to let you create housing. But if you just want to be a speculator, you probably want a municipality that doesn't let you create housing (laughs) because you benefit more from the scarcity. So during the approval period, a single family development may need to undergo anywhere from 17 to 8 to 28 different studies as part of the processes. It's massive. Just wild. 17 to 28 studies. Like, what are you studying 28 times to? To make sure that you can build a house here. Yeah. And CMHC had a take on this as well. So. Yeah, their municipal land survey. So data collected from the 2022 municipal land use and regulation survey unearthed a compelling connection between land use regulations and housing affordability, particularly in highly regulated cities. Released in July of 2023, the survey shed further light on the impact of stringent zoning laws, height restrictions, and other regulatory measures on the availability and cost of housing. Yeah, so in CMHC's 2018 report, and by the way, you can just Google that by the 2022 Municipal Land Use and Regulation Survey from from CMHC. They they released an article on in July 13, 2023. It says approval delays linked with lower housing affordability. Whoa, who would have thought? So, and they actually rank all of the cities like it's just a shame, a wall of shame basically. <laughs> GTA and Vancouver are the worst. Actually, GTA, Vancouver, Ontario and BC are all the worst. And then yeah, we'll go we'll go through it. I think I have it in here. Yeah, I do. Sweet. 2018 report escalating house prices. They cited municipal land use regulations as a potential factor contributing to rising house prices. So just, you know, if only they mentioned that earlier, five, six years ago, right? Uh, anyway, there there was a lack of data to draw, draw uh, definitive conclusions, but um, they worked closely with Statistics Canada to develop and conduct a survey to close this crucial gap. So it only took the, the government's uh, six years to start acting on this, this advice from 
their own housing ministry. The objective was to measure the degree of local land use restriction in municipalities across Canada, which would, which they did well, and we'll get to the we'll get to the the list. Yeah. So the municipal land use and regulation index captures the degree of land use regulation in each city. Higher values indicate more regulation, and smaller values represent less regulation. For to easy understand this, these values have been normalized relative to the GTA, which will be 100. That'll be represented as 100, it, the GTA. The speed of approving new developments is the most crucial survey factor in understanding the differences in housing affordability among various land use regulations. Okay, so let's take a look then at the naughty list on who is considered the worst for approvals in Canada. So I'm going to start off. I'm just going to go through the list. I'm going to read the city and then the municipal land use and regulation index. So GTA is 100. So we know that they're, well, they're the top of the list. So GTA, 100, Greater Vancouver area, 98. The rest of Ontario, an 80. So 80% of how bad Toronto is. The rest of BC, 79. The territory, 79. Greater Montreal area, 77. Greater Edmonton area, 73. Atlantic Canada, a 72. Manitoba, a 71. The rest of Quebec, 71. The rest of Alberta, a 68. And who has the best permitting municipal land use and regulation index in the country? Saskatchewan at 66%. Way better. Way better than that 100 index on the greater Toronto area. So why don't you take me through the same list, starting with the GTA on approval delay index? Exactly. So we'll start off again. The GTA ranks at 101, but it is not first on the list. The greater Vancouver area. Do we ever agree to call that the GVA, Dan? I think we got. No, I think we got. I think somebody canceled us for trying to do that. The lower mainland. I think the same person they got. They they think they gave you. They gave us a negative review on the podcast for you calling the Pacific Midwest. Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Yeah, but the, yeah, Midwest. Um, then we, I think we pulled it up on Wikipedia. That was a Wikipedia it, it thing. Is. So yeah. Anyways, let's. Yeah. I don't we, know. I mean, maybe he, the guy's probably still uh, arguing with the Wikipedia owner. I guess about that. <laughs> Definitely hasn't donated to Wikipedia. So the Greater Vancouver actually takes longer, more approval delays there. Out of they come in at 101. The rest of Ontario drops by almost 50 percent. They're down at 52, whereas the rest of BC is at 60. We've got the territories at 36, greater Montreal area jumping back up to 71. So, uh, longer approval delays there. Greater Edmonton looking pretty good at 38. Again, remember this is compared to 100. So we want lower numbers. Atlantic Canada, 43, Manitoba, 27, the rest of Quebec, 51, the rest of Alberta, 27 and actually the rest of Alberta beats Saskatchewan on this one as it comes in at 29. Yeah. And then finally, if we look at the housing unaffordability of all of these areas, so basically this is your house price divided by income. So house price to income ratio. So let's say you make a hundred grand a year, greater Toronto area as an example is 9.25. So your house would be $925,000 relative to to the average incomes in that area. So GTA 9.25 house price to income ratio, greater Vancouver area 14.19. Crazy. For house price to income. Yeah. So I I don't know, can you qualify a guy for a um, mortgage of 14x <laughs> income, Nick? Is that that banks are banks are lining up to do those ones, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, so the rest of Ontario six times income is house prices are six times income. BC, 7.45 
times income. In territories, we're starting to see some affordability. House prices are 3.47 times income. Greater Montreal area, the biggest of the, uh, the best of the large cities, 6.63 times house prices to income. Greater Edmonton area, house prices are 4.28 times income. Atlantic Canada and Manitoba, the rest of Quebec, the rest of Alberta and Saskatchewan are all in the threes for house prices to income ratio. So that's where you're going like to find affordability. Yeah. 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 So I, we'll get back to the report here because I, I wanted I just wanted to add that CMHC context because it's like everyone agrees with the things that are being said here. So for each housing unit in a high density development, every month of construction delay is estimated to increase costs by $2,600 to $3,300 according to a 2022 build report. As a result, result of that shortage... Homeownership in Canada is increasingly unaffordable. We have the highest price to income ratio among the G7. And since this is funny, there's a, there's a graphic. I mean, we'll talk about it because since 2015, Canada's rental and home price growth outpaces all G7 and Euro area countries as demonstrated by the, by the following PIR and price to rent ratios, PRR graphs. Both trends point towards growing demand for rental housing to temper the rise in housing costs in Canada. So we've said it a million times on the show. We're heading for a renter's economy. That alludes to basically an inflation-driven K-shaped recovery. If you want to survive that, you kind of have to be the person who owns the hard asset so that you're benefiting from inflation which, which, by the way, the Bank of Canada in that monetary policy report I mentioned earlier, the Bank of Canada said that they now expect... So first they're like, oh yeah, we expect inflation to hit target range in 2021 or 2022. Now, then it was 2023. And then it was 2024. And now it's 2025 yeah. in their most recent report. They just so, kept on going and crossing crossing it out and, and right in the next year. Too I mean, a recession is the only thing that's going to get it there. And I think that stuff going on in uh, the Red Sea right now is... Is a bit of a another one of those supply chain disruptions mm-hmm. like we saw in co- during COVID, right? Yeah. So anyway, hit me with this report, and then we'll talk about these charts because they're 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 kind of depressing. Yeah. So due to the shortage, homeownership in Canada is becoming more expensive. Canada has now the highest price. Oh, I think I just said. Yeah, that. you did. Okay, I'm making you reread stuff. So let's just dump down here the to the the first yeah, chart we'll here, the price to income ratio chart. Yeah, so I, I posted these on Twitter and I was like, no matter how you slice it, Canada is one of the worst places to invest in real estate in the G7, which sucks because we're the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast and we're supposed to say it's a great place to invest. <laughs> and there are great places in Canada to invest, which is going to be contextualized in this report. We'll try and get there as soon as possible. By the looks of this list, we should be the Italian Real Estate Investor yeah. Podcast. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's price to income. So, we'll, so we'll basically, the first chart shows price to income, which is measuring how expenses are relative to incomes, and it goes like this. So, Canada, 165 price to income ratio, Germany, 128, France, 113, UK, 112, Japan, 103, US, 94, and Italy, 88. So, we have the worst price to income ratio in the G7. Now, talk to me about the growth that we've seen in that. Yeah, so Canada's price to income ratio has grown 49% while the USA has grown 40%, where Germany's has grown 37%, and the OECD countries as a total have grown by 28%. And unfortunately, we've also seen the most growth in price-to-rent ratio, which is what we care about as investors since 2015. House prices relative to rental income have grown by 62% in Canada, 53% in Germany, 42% in the USA, 40% across the OECD, 34% in the Euro area, 30% in Great Britain, 
29% in France and only 5% in good old Italy, Nick. I know you want to do that, uh, hey. that shout out to the motherland. Grazie. Yeah, so there's they go on to this housing structure key indicators. I think we're we're getting short on time here. So there, I do want to jump jump to just that the last. I want to go through the markets quickly. Yeah, so I was I was thinking. Wait, why don't we to, use the markets as a teaser? Because there's so much like this. We're not even halfway through what like our notes on the show here. Yeah. So I yeah. I think maybe yeah let's let's touch on the markets because I I love I love a lot of these markets and. Dan, you and yeah, I invest so, in all these markets. So let's do this, and then we'll we'll use this as kind of a teaser to say that we are going to do a part two on this, hopefully with someone from Cushman on to actually talk about this, and we can do a deeper dive into these markets. Yeah, do you have it up in front of you? Uh, are we looking at primary, secondary, and tertiary, or are we looking at the stabilized no, yield? No, further down. So, yeah, stabilized yield, so 70th percentile achievable rent scenario. So they're basically saying this is what your yield would be if you got 70% of the highest rents in the in the market. So give me that list. And you're, Nick, I know you and I both were grinning ear to ear when we, when we read this and our listeners are going to know we, why. We were so. sending these to each other being like, look at P. I think this is like page five. I sent it to a bunch of the bunch of the guys. I was like, page five. <laughs> yeah. You'll, they'll, you'll know why when we see this. Okay. Well, they exposed us now. Now we actually have to compete with people on on uh, properties in our you market. Know, to, me, to me, this just means the good people at Cushman were have been listening to the podcast for a long time, took what we said, made it much more eloquent, put it in a package and made us reread what we've been saying for a long time. Yeah, I need to get their methodology because um, I would just love to recreate this same list coast to coast. Yeah. But anyway, and we're going to, yeah. we're going to figure it out. We're going to talk to Samantha. And we're going to be like, let's just let's do it. Do. Okay. Here are, I'm just going to read these top five. Okay. The first one, Thunder Bay, Sault Ste. Marie, Chatham Kent, and then we've got Sudbury and Cornwall. Absolutely love to see it. Yeah. There's a couple, couple beauty towns for Puts sure. Puts a big smile on my face. There's a ton of other stuff on the list. Those are just the the top five right there. There's probably another 20 plus on this list. Or there's 34 in total. I think maybe with the part two of this episode, Dan, we we kind of really dive in on, on these markets. And I'd love to get, uh, you know, whether it's Samantha or, or whoever graces us with their presence from Cushman to, to, to yeah. do, help us do a deeper dive on this. But yeah, I think, I think, I mean, I could talk about this for another hour or two, but we, we try to keep these episodes around 45 minutes. So, Yeah, the only other thing I would mention is they also outline that second profitable strategy, which is to develop, which is something we talk about a lot here. But then they basically say, you know, markets with a 6% development yield or higher would be attractive to investors, given, you know, the exit cap rates, capital costs, etc. Um, they use something called the yield on cost, which is basically a, me- a metric that investors use to calculate to assess a project based on all of the costs that you put in. So I paid this much for the project. This is my return, my my uh, my income on it. That's the yield. Yield on cost. Yield on top of cost. That's pretty profound, that, right? That's it right all these there. things sound so complicated, but then when you just like take a minute to think about them, it's like, okay. And the one, the one last thing I want to do, so on that yield to cost and where the best markets to develop in, we'll read those and then we'll shut her down. Well, it's the same five. They're just in a different order. I know, so. but come on. It, let's just read them. Okay, fine. It's Sault Ste. Marie, number one. And so, so again, remember, this becomes a function of, of the cost to develop in that area as well. This is where it becomes a little bit more dynamic. So Sault Ste. Marie, Thunder Bay. And Sault Ste. Marie looks like over an 8% development yield on cost, by the way. Yeah. Thunder Bay just below an 8% yield on costs. Sudbury, Cornwall, North Bay, and Chatham, Kent again. 
So great markets. Stay out of them. That uh, there's not enough. Towns, there's not enough room in there for everybody. Top, top OHL teams as well. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. Great markets. We're gonna call it here, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. We will. Uh, we'll let you know when we get part two of this one out. We've already reached out to Cushman on it, and I think we're. I think we've settled up that we're having someone on. Correct, Dan. Yeah, I uh, I, had, I think we had to reschedule last week. So, um, yeah, hopefully we'll get yeah. them on in short order and, and discuss this in a little bit more granular detail. But I feel like this was a good start um, to kind of give everybody yeah. the meat of the report so that we can discuss it a little bit more. I don't know, just like a little more in detail on, on some of these right? markets. Yeah. yeah. And again, get a get a third third opinion in here. Anyways, on that note, thanks so much for listening, everybody. Hope you got a ton of value out of this report. Go check it out. We'll link it in the show notes and more to come on this. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.